tab or .com, you can click. On either or, you can click. So, but remember, querosograce.org or .com and uh, on the given tab. Oh, and at this time, the children are being released. There you go. Thank you, Mama. So all, all the kids, all the kids, y'all can make a single file line and wa uh, follow the teachers in the back. All right, so if you can turn your Bibles to Acts, to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4. When you're there, you can say, Amen, Amen. Praise the Lord, not everyone's there then, right? Acts chapter 4, verse 32. <clears throat> and we'll start off. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, not Joseph here, but Joseph, who is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias. That's a pretty cool name, right? Ananias. Why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? For after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Man, that's kind of like you get that out of a movie or something, right? Like, what was taking place here? So you, you, you see um, the seriousness of the situation. So let's back up a little bit as to see what was already taking place leading into this. So... Not last week, but the week before, we had uh, Brother Carlos join us, and he was sharing with us about the boldness that, uh, that the believers had because they were being filled by the Spirit of God. And so look with me at verse, verse 31 of chapter 4. We're going to see how 31 connects into 32. Remember, when Luke wrote the book of Acts, there was no verses nor chapters. So it wasn't chapter 1, chapter 2, it was none of that. Later on, they added it to just help people keep it, you know, organized. They know what they're going through. They, they could go back to that verse. But back then, it was just a letter that they wrote. So when we're looking at the text, this is what we want to make an observation of, is what was being communicated prior before we've seen uh, what's taking place. And verse 31 says, when they had prayed, key points that we're going to look at, they prayed, the place that they were gathered together was shaken. So they were gathered together in prayer. There was a shaking of the place, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The infilling of the Holy Spirit. This is a very crucial point here. It's very important. Because what we're seeing, that as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, something happened after that. It's that they continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. Not fear, but boldness. Now, not everyone was in agreement with them speaking the word of God with boldness. There was a few people that were kind of upset. They're like, what? are they trying to do? See, their lives were put in jeopardy, but they had boldness to keep preaching the gospel. They were going to lose probably family members along the way, but they were, had boldness to preach the gospel. And so what we see is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and because of this empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they had a boldness to preach the gospel. Where does this boldness come from? In the book of Romans, chapter 8, 
Paul is writing about that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Say, so you didn't receive the spirit of slavery because then you would be fearful. You will fall back into a pattern of fear. And we know that fear in, our man, in, our hearts, in the heart of a man can grip them. It can enslave them. And that's why Paul is saying, you weren't given the spirit of slavery, but that of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption. It says, now you become children of God. And, and on that same passage, it says, then you're crying out, Abba, Father. So follow with me in this connection because what Paul is saying that the Spirit assures us of our position before God. Like our kids. We want our kids to know that we love them. That no matter what they've done, that we still care for them. That we still love them. There's an assurance that they have. Now, we might not agree with everything that they're doing, but we still love them. We still care for them. And so what we've seen here is that it is important for you and I to have this assurance that we are children of God, that we belong to God. Not on the basis of what we do or bring to the table, but on what Jesus Christ has done for us. We draw our identity from that. So the Spirit gives us assurance. So now, what we see that that boldness comes from that, and as that boldness arises, they begin to preach the Word of God. So there's a boldness in preaching the Word of God. So what we're seeing that this boldness was made evident in the lives of the disciples because no matter they were trying to put him in jail, they were still preaching the word of God. No matter if they were going to put him to death, they were still preaching the word of God. So where does this boldness come from? Not from them, but from God. It wasn't something they mustered up together within themselves. It's like, we're a group of guys, nah, let's go out there. No, it was the spirit of God that had came upon them and gave them boldness. Now... With that same thought, look at what happens in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. What a beautiful description of the unity of the church. One heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. This is a radical way of living. That all the, this is what we own, but I'm not even going to call it my own. I'm willing to share with someone that is in need. I wasn't going to be hoarding it for myself, but you know what? They have need for it, I'm going to go ahead and bless them with it. They weren't governed by what they possessed. And what we see here is that not only was the boldness made evident through the proclamation of the word, but their boldness was made evident by the radical generosity that they had. It is hard to be generous, especially when we're living in a time and age where we don't know if we're going to make ends meet, if we don't know if this is going to happen or not. But what we see here is that 
when they were being infilled with the Spirit, not only did they have boldness to preach the word, but they had boldness to live in a generous way. So there was boldness both in word and in deed. So now Luke is capturing this beautiful picture of a generous community where they said, although it belongs to me, I don't call it my own. But then he goes on to say, and they had everything in common. So what we're seeing that in this community, they had boldness to preach the word, but there was a reversal of values. You see, the value system of the world was no longer defining what was important for them. It was the scriptures. It was the word of God. Now, what we're seeing in this radical way of living, that their possessions were seen as gifts that were meant to remind them of the giver of these gifts. You see, these gifts didn't take precedence over the giver. They just reminded them of who was the one that gives good gifts. The possessions, property, power, no longer controlled the lives because they belonged to God. So everything they had in common, can you imagine the community, the Christian community, they, they were liberated from the value system of this world. This is what grace was producing in each one of them. Now, verse 33 says there was great power in the apostles as they were given testimony. You see, when Luke is writing this, he is specific about what he is putting in the text. He's talking about their gracious giving. Then all of a sudden he talks about the proclamation of the word. And then right after that, in verse 34, look at what he says. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses, they were selling them and giving uh, the proceeds that they sold to the apostles' feet so that the apostles could give to those who had need. Do you see their willingness to give? When we look at this, this challenges me. When we look at their way of living, it really challenges me. It exposes those things that I idolize or consider to be more important than God. A lot of times we look at our wealth to be more important than the treasures that we have in Jesus. A lot of times we look at our possessions to be more important than what God has provided for us through his son Jesus. We live in America. Although we live in the hood, this hood is more richer than a lot of parts in the other countries. We have an air conditioner. AC unit. Man, you go to some parts of Mexico, they don't got no AC unit. And they're like walking like 5, 10, 15 miles to get to a little hut where they come together to worship. They ain't got no ACs. See, over here we got to turn on the AC, right? It feel good, like the AC going. But what if it all turned off? Would we be okay going outside and worshiping together? 
You see, these situations expose what are we treasuring in our heart. These guys were liberated, man. They were liberated to go out there. And they said they saw someone in need, man. You know what? Let me let me sell this what I got so I could help them out. Imagine if we lived like that a little bit more. Imagine the kind of community we would be. Imagine the impact that it would have in the community. Imagine the impact that the church would have around the world. Radical way of living. And so Luke is showing us this close connection between the proclamation of the word and the radical way of living. And he's seeing that they go hand in hand because this radical way of living is that they were serving the needs of the people. They were going out there, and as they saw needs, they were addressing those needs. Now, what we see in verse 31 is that being spirit-filled, it produced a boldness to speak the word uh, of God with boldness. Now, but the other part is that being spirit-filled also produced a boldness in generous living. So it was both, both boldness in word and boldness in deed. A lifestyle of radical living meant that they were now sharing of what they had with one another. Oh, that AC is loud, huh? It done dropped. So now keep, keep that in mind, though, that as the Spirit is working in us, it's liberating us from those things that we would consider most precious to us. And if we see a brother and sister in need, we're no longer like, ah, should I, should I not? We're like, no, we're looking for opportunities, opportunities to demonstrate the grace of God that he's displayed in our lives. How can we be a blessing to someone else? And so the marks of a spirit-filled disciple is generosity, Generosity, not only a boldness in preaching the word, but a boldness to be generous. So a lack of generosity is not so much because we're being stingy, but it is in connection with fearfulness. There is a fear that is rooted in that. There's a fear that's shaping what, why we don't give. Now, We saw earlier that in Romans, Paul was talking about we haven't been given the spirit of slavery that leads us to fear. We've been given the spirit of adoption. We've been adopted into God's family. We belong to him. Now, keep that in mind, because what happens is that when there's a lack of generosity, it points that there is a fear. There is an insecurity. There's a fear of the future. There's a fear of the present. There's a fear, what if we don't have enough? What if we can't pay the bills? What if I get a, a pink slip and my light's going to get turned off? Like, man, there's all kind of realistic fears. But those fears can blind us from seeing who God is. Those fears can easily grip us and hold us hostage. And we forget that, We've been adopted into God's family and we begin to live as orphans. So it's very important then. Now, we must then see that 
this fearfulness is because we're not confident in God's love for us. We're trying to find security and confidence in other things that we, we think will deliver us. But this fear is what motivates greed, is not having an assurance of God's love for us, that if God is for us, he will not leave us nor forsake us. So being spirit-filled produces a boldness, and this boldness opposes, this work of the spirit will oppose the spirit of fear. Now, so the opposite then of boldness is a lack of courage. A lack of courage. And so fear will grip us. It will keep us hostage. But the grace of God is what begins to liberate each one of us. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. For either you will be faithful to one and unfaithful to the other. Therefore, you cannot serve both God and money. See, so when the Holy Spirit is working the grace of God in our hearts, it's purging out this fear that we have, this fear of man, this fear of, of, of the things to come. It's purging those things out, and we're beginning to trust that God has it together. That although we don't see it as if we have it together, it's not meant for you to have it together. It's God who has it together. And therefore, you and I can rest in him. But I tell you that it is easier said than done, though, right? Amen? So how important then is it that we are daily running to the cross and reminding ourselves of that? So being spirit-filled will produce this generous heart. will remind us that we are children of the Most High God. God will take care of us. Although I don't see it in front of me, I can believe what the Word of God says. And if I believe that it is God's Word, He who promises is not like you and I. We break our promises. But God will never break His promise. And so, what we see then, this generosity is made evident by the way we give of our time, the way we give of our talents, our treasure, our time where we're serving one another, you know, we're looking for those opportunities, of our talents where we're using our gifts for the building of God's kingdom, of the treasure that God entrusts us with to be able to invest into the mission that he's called us to. So Jesus said, how will the world know that you are my disciples? And it's by the way you love one another. And an act of generosity to one another is love. You're loving each other. Man, you know what? You're going through a difficult situation. Not only am I going to pray for you, but I'm going to look for an opportunity to serve you in that. So we're being challenged here to sacrificially be generous to one another with our time, with what God entrusts us with, so that we can be a blessing to one another. There's a radical reorientation of what we value. No longer are we governed by the world system, 
for gods. Now, as we're seeing this evidence of this boldness taking place, we're given two examples by Luke. Luke gives us two examples, one by the name of Barnabas, and the other example is of a husband and a wife. And so what I want us to look at is what takes place here. Look at verse 36. It says, Joseph, who was called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which meant the son of encouragement, it says that he sold a field that belonged to him. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Because remember, the apostles were the one that was distributed. Now look at what happens in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And they brought it to the apostles' feet also to get distributed. I want you to notice that both of them did the same thing. Why is it that one is commended while the other one is condemned? There's something going on here. Now, Barnabas, he sold his land. Ananias and and his wife, they sold their property. Barnabas, he brought the proceeds to them. Ananias and his wife, they brought the proceeds to them. Barabbas, I mean, Barnabas, Barnabas, he put put the money down at the apostles' feet. Ananias did the same thing. Outwardly, you can fool people. Outwardly, it can look like you're doing a good deed. Outwardly. But God is not concerned on the outside. He's concerned on the inside. And so what we see here is that something happened. Look at verse 2. It says, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it to them. Now, is God concerned with how much money you give? No. Then why is it here in the text that he says he kept some of the money? What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that, right? God's not like, oh, I want you to sow $1,000 and put it in a basket. Ah, God is not concerned with that. that that's, mm-mm, no. It is the position of the heart by which we give that is very important. It is not the amount, but it is the actual position of the heart. Look at what Peter tells him in verse 3. It says, but Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to do what? To lie. To who did he lie to? To the Holy Spirit. Not so much to Peter and the rest of the guys that were there, but to the Holy Spirit. Now, not only in that passage does he say that, but he says, again, 
Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter was calling them out saying, you, you lied. But what was it that he was lying about? You see, he tells them, look, when you had that land, you owned the land, it was yours. When you sold it, that money was still yours. It was at your disposal. You could do whatever you want with it. It's not because you didn't give enough. It is because you lied. And this is the way in that was, they were lying. It's, for example, if today I have a car and I say, I'm going to give 10% of what I sell that car for. And say I sell the car for $1,000. So 10% of $1,000 is what? hundred bucks. But I come to you and I tell you that I sold the car only for 500 bucks because I don't really want to give a hundred dollars. I sold it for 500 bucks. So 10% of that, that'll be 50 bucks. So I come tell everybody, yeah, you know, I sold my car for $500 and here's $50. Like, yeah, you know, so outwardly people are like, oh, wow, look, He's giving, the, you know, his 10% and this and that, right? So outwardly, it looks good. But I've already deceived the people around me to pretend as if I was now graciously giving like everyone else. You see, what was taking place here is that a lot of people were graciously giving. They were sacrificially giving. And all of a sudden, Ananias and Sapphira come together and they want to pretend as if they're graciously giving like everyone else. They're motivated to lie. But this motivation is rooted somewhere. This motivation for them to lie was rooted somewhere. Ananias and Sapphira, their motive for giving was not to glorify God, but to seek the glory for themselves. They wanted a pat in the back more than what they wanted to help the needy. They wanted to be recognized and appreciated for giving a lot. God is not concerned with the amount that we give, but the position of the heart by which we give. So we're not up here going to tell you, you need to sow $200 into the basket, and then God's going to bless you with a Bentley and all this crazy stuff. Nah, man, it's a lie from the pit of hell. God is not concerned with your money. God owns your money. He wants to see if you're liberated by, by the work of grace to graciously give. If you give a dollar, give it with joy. If you give a hundred dollars, you give it with joy. And that is what we're seeing. They were giving because they were pretending to be something they were not. They could have easily given whatever they wanted, but they didn't have to lie. They didn't have to pretend. And so outwardly, they could fool people, but they could not fool God. For whatever a man soweth, that is what he will reap. It was spiritual pride that had, that had set it in their hearts. Ananias and Sapphira were using Christianity as a way of building their reputation to give them a sense of worth through their works. Look at what I'm doing now. 
Look at what I'm doing now. Christianity is not about that. That's the fruit of what we do. Christianity is about what Jesus did for you. And because of that, it compels you to give. It compels you to move. It compels you to serve. I don't do these things so that I can gain a position before God. Jesus already did that for me. And so when we're looking at the text, we see then that they were self-seeking. They were trying to gratify themselves. There was greed. There was dishonesty. There was pride. There was hypocrisy. There were workspace. They were self-righteous. Jesus told the Pharisees, you lack the love of God. You don't have the love of God in your heart. Why? Because you seek your own glory. You seek your own glory. So Ananias and Sapphira were using the people of God for self-gain rather than serving the people of God. So now, what is this gain? They were trying to gain their own righteous reputation instead of resting in Jesus' righteousness. It was no longer about a relationship with Jesus, but a religion of works. Let me impress people. No, if you jacked up from the floor, come on, man. Let God do a work in you. You don't have to pretend to have it all together. And this is, this is the invitation that is made to each one of us. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to pretend as if they did have it together. Look at how well we're giving like everyone else. Man, if you only had a little, it's okay. You give a little. But God is not concerned with the amount, but the position of the heart. So when a follower of Jesus is spirit-filled, it is evident by their radical generosity. And so they're no longer worried about possessions, power, positions, or reputation, because their joy is made complete in Jesus Christ. And Ananias, then, and Sapphira were guilty of the sin of hypocrisy. They were refusing to live honestly with one another. Outwardly, they could pretend all they want, but God saw right through it. Therefore, it is important in our own Christian community, what can we learn from this? Is that transparency is important. If we're struggling with some sin, it's important that we're open with one another. Because if we're holding it in, Man, sooner or later is going to be exposed. The grace of God liberates us to be open with one another. Ain't no one here holding a rod of judgment against each other. Judgment already fell upon Jesus. Who are we to condemn one another? No one. You see, Sapphira and Ananias would have been open with them like, man, you know what? I really need some of this change because, I, you know, I got to buy, I got like eight kids at home, man. I still got to buy some food and stuff. Man, that's all good in the hood, right? Ain't nothing wrong with that. We have to be reminded of what God has provided for us. It is in that that grace is liberating us. Grace is liberating our hearts. So we're no longer seen. God as my homie, we're no longer seeing God as a Santa Claus. We're no longer seeing 
God is a genie in the bottle. I rub it, and, and, and he comes out to meet what I'm, I'm trying to do with my needs that I have. What we're seeing that God means business. Because what we saw here is that that sin that they struggled with immediately was chastised. The judgment of God fell on them. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They didn't go on a temporary vacation. (laughs) They went on a long-term vacation. You see the seriousness of of the sin that had to be dealt with. When we think about God, we think about love, but we also think about his judgment. God is serious. And he dealt with sin with Jesus Christ at the cross. That's how serious he takes sin. That someone had to die and that someone was Jesus Christ. And so what we see here then, family, is that Transparency in community is important. Generosity is a mark of being spirit-filled. Boldness not only to tell about the word of God, but a boldness to live radically before God. Man, I only got one tortilla with some beans. I'm going to invite a brother over. You know what? I know that he don't got much, but I'm going to half it with them. And you know what? I can't even eat tortillas anymore, so I'll give you the tortillas. Right, baby? But... Learning to be generous with one another. The things that we possess, they don't belong to us. They belong to God. We, he just entrusted them with us. And so, we get now to this point. That in verse 11, it says that a great fear came upon the whole church. Upon all who heard of these things. A great fear. God used this as a reminder to them. Unity is essential. Unity in the church is important. We saw in the previous verses that they were of one mind, one heart. They were together, praying together. So there's already this unity that's taking place. This act of generosity was just binding them together even more. They were living together in community. This was a community in action. You want to see what the love of God looked like? Look to them, the community in action. But the moment the spiritual pride set into the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, guess what the spiritual pride was going to do? They were going to become judgmental towards others. They were going to become self-righteous. And we already know how Jesus felt about the Pharisees who were self-righteous. We already know when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was addressing this issue of self-righteousness. You're trying to find righteousness in your works and not in the grace that God has provided for you through Jesus. That begins to tear at the fabric of unity. The sin of hypocrisy, the sin of spiritual pride, all of that is made evident through, our, uh, through, through greed, through lying, through dishonesty, and that begins to tear at the fabric of unity. But unity is so important to God. 
Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, not only did he remove the barrier between God and man, but between each other. Because, I mean, sometimes we say, man, can't we just get along, right? We're always picking things to fight about and argue about. But it's because we're always looking to the defects that we all got. We're like labeling all these things. But what do we look through the lens of the gospel? And we're reminded that you and I, we've all sinned. Each one of us has sinned before a holy God. There is none that is perfect here. And I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm jacked up from the floor up. Right, Brother Marshall? Yeah, yeah, we, man, we broken. I need Jesus as bad as everyone else. And if I come up here thinking that I got it together, I'm already pretending to be someone that I'm not. Why am I going to do that? You see, that begins to sow seeds amongst the group. Seeds that bring division to act. Oh, no, well, I got it. Well, let me help you. I don't need your help. I mean, I see you dragging your feet. What you talking about? You don't need no help. We, we need to humble ourselves, man. Be open with each other. Like, hey, you know what? Brother Marshall, can you help me pick up my kids? Because the other day, you know, I ran here. I couldn't do it. And we, we help each other out. One day he went and picked up my son when he got caught skipping. Right, brother? Man, seriously. Hey, I wasn't embarrassed. Hey, my son got caught skipping. He jacked up just like his daddy. He need Jesus too. I called Marshall. I said, bro, can you go? He goes, man, I'll go right now, bro. He went all the way across town to go pick him up. We're family. Man, ain't nothing gonna surprise us. Like, oh man, no, man, we man, if we was to tell you all our junk in our trunk, you'd probably be like, man, and you're a pastor? Man, I'm telling you, the Lord redeemed me from all kind of brokenness. There's hope for each one of us, family. And when the Spirit of God is empowering each one of us, those marks are made evident through our boldness in, how, in the words that we're proclaiming about Jesus and in our radical way of living. Our radical way of living. So now I end with this. This is a, a quote from Kellen. And I love how he's summing up this issue about, uh, you know, being generous or the struggling with being uh, uh, greedy and stuff. This is what he says. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is talking about the grace of God working in them because he's telling them about giving to the church and helping out. But he says, look, Paul is not motivating them with, with a false kind of motivation. He says, I don't want... He goes, Paul says that, I don't want to order you. I don't want this offering to simply be a response of my demand. In other words, I don't want to be like a pastor up here. And because I'm a pastor, you should give to the ministry. You know, I don't want to use that authority, he says. I'm not going to abuse my authority. You need to give to the church. No, 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 no. He says, he doesn't put pressure directly on their will. In other words, saying, I am an apostle and this is your duty to me. In other words, you need to help me, none of that. Nor pressure directly on the emotions by telling them stories about how much the poor are suffering and how much more they they have than, than the people that are suffering. It's like, 
You see the people in the neighborhood. You see the people out there in the corner. Like, and let me use that to, to motivate you to give. We're not doing that. Look at what he's saying. Instead, Paul vividly and unforgettably says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. When he says, you know the grace, he is using a powerful image of bringing Jesus' salvation into the realm of money and wealth and poverty. He moves them from a spiritual recollection of the gospel. Paul is saying, think on his costly grace. Think on his grace until you are changed into a generous person by the gospel in your heart. So it's not think about all the things you got to do. Think about what God did for you. We must start there. So that we can become generous people, we need to see how generous God was to you. Although he was rich, he became poor. He identified with us in our brokenness. He met us where we were at. He didn't say, I need you to get your act together before you could come to church. He knew you would never come to church. Therefore, he took the church to you. That's the grace of God. He says, think on that. Think on that. And as you're thinking on that, your heart begins to be liberated. So the solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ and the gospel where he poured out his wealth for you. Now, you don't have to worry about money because the cross proves that God's care for you and gives you security, uh, and his wealth is for you. Now, he gives you security in that and what Jesus purchased for you. Now, you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Because Jesus' love and salvation confers on you a remarkable status. One that money cannot give to you. And that is, you are today children of the Most High God. You are loved by God and no one and nothing can break that. So no money, no power, no possessions can give us that status. Jesus Christ purchased that for us. I'm telling you, when we live out of that identity, we begin to be liberated. Liberated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we pray that we would be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled disciples that, that, that are boldly preaching your word and that are boldly living generous lives. That that generosity would be evident by the time that we give to serve others, by the finances that we use to bless others, Lord. God, let us be reminded that, that what we possess is not ours. It is yours, Lord. Let us be reminded, Father God, 
that you own everything. And God, from that reality, let us look for opportunities to be a blessing to others. And let us be reminded that we can only make this happen by the power of your spirit at work in us and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today I ask, Lord, if any one of us has struggled, Father God, we're living a generous life. If any one of us has doubted, Father God, or has had fears that grip us, Lord, in Jesus' name that we will be liberated from that fear. For you have not given us a spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption. And that spirit of adoption cries out, Abba, Father. Oh, God, what a blessed position we have before you. We belong to you. And so I pray today, Lord, that we would be that, that kind of spirit-filled community that I, although we are a small group, is not by the amount of money, but the position that our hearts are in as we give freely, Lord. So we ask you today, continue to move in us, Father. Let us be that kind of church that graciously gives, not only to one another, Lord, but to help those that are in need in our community. Not only to help those that are in need in our community, but across the world, Father God. Thank you once again, Lord, that you freely gave to us your son, Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, y'all. So we're about to enter into our time of communion. But before that, I want to read to y'all from uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And then I want to just say a few words. So I'm going to be reading from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying... This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats and drinks uh, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. All right, so we just got done talking about Ananias and Sapphira and uh, their infamous example. Um, and we're about to enter into communion. Disregard that. We're about to enter into communion. Um, something that we do every week, but this ought not to be just a, a ritual that we do without thinking, you know? In the same way that uh, giving or whatever else we do here or outside of here, you know, as a church or as individuals, you know, in Christ, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't just be done ritualistically without, you know, giving it thought, without like, eh, I'm just gonna give whatever change I have here in my pocket, or I'm just gonna throw the juice back, throw the bread back, you know? Um, we see that Ananias and Sapphira acted in hypocrisy, right? It wasn't so much the amount they gave, it was that they just wanted to fit in. They wanted to look right like the rest of the people that were giving, you know? 
And uh, from what I, from what I see later on in the text, I see that uh, it, it had an effect on the church too, and people that were thinking about coming in the church. Because I'm assuming that you know uh, a lot of people were joining the church so that they could get you know the benefits from it. You know they were they were spreading all of this wealth around. You know nobody had need, so there were people that were coming in that were insincere probably. And uh, once they saw the example of Ananias and Sapphira, all those people were weeded out. You know, I, uh, later on in the text it says that. Uh, for everybody in the community, they were held in high esteem, right? But nobody dared join them because of what happened with the Ananias and Sapphira. And as we saw in the text, you know, the church and everybody had great fear. Um, we see the consequences of their hypocrisy. And here, you know, we even see, you know, God's judgment falling on people, you know, that were taking communion wrong because of their hypocrisy. Uh, the next verse says... Uh, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You know, it says plainly that God took action because people were, you know, taking communion out of, you know, ritualistically or without discerning themselves and stuff. Um, so that's just a warning against hypocrisy. You know, if, if you see, if you're, if you're uh, concerned about your motive for doing whatever you're doing, giving, taking communion, uh, serving, whatever, uh, if if it's not for the right motive, I would say don't even do it. Don't even, don't give, don't take communion, don't serve. Be made right with God. Be be uh, be put in a, in, a, in a place where you know your motives are for God, for Christ, and then give, take communion, serve, do whatever you got to do in the body. You know, um, if your conscience is right with God, if your conscience is clean before God, and you know you belong to Him then I, this, this invitation for a communion is for you. Take it not out of fear, you know, am I right? Am I, am I unworthy? Am I taking it in an unworthy manner? If, you're, if your motives are clear, you have nothing to worry about, you know? So for y'all, I invite you to come take communion. And to the parents of the remaining kids that are here, I would probably say, you know, don't let them take it unless you know for sure that, you know, they've repented and they've been made right with God. Away, away 
hear your voice and meet with you. Nothing else matters. My one desire is to worship you. I live to worship you. I live. I live to worship you. To worship you. To worship you. To worship. to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. You guys, y'all can be dismissed. Go in peace. Um, enjoy this week. Oh, get the kids. What happened? Oh, the ladies' retreat, right? Uh, there's a ladies' retreat meeting next door. Thank you, sis. If y'all can pick up all the trash, if you see trash on the floor, that'll be great. Is there anything? <laughs> yes, ma'am.